Welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony Caldellis, your host. Today I have a confession to make. Here it is. For many years, possibly decades, I wasn't very impressed with Hagia Sophia. Oh sure, I understood it was an architectural and engineering marvel, and I had studied the diagrams. But those diagrams had failed to fire my imagination when I visited the building. It was dark, kind of drab, and there was never anything interesting going on in it. I tried to abstract away the later Ottoman accretions to the building, but that exercise also left me nowhere. I was actually drawn more to the details of the ornamentation inside than to the sheer vastness of the thing. And historians tend to discuss Hagia Sophia as an achievement of Justinian, so inscribing it within a political context. Um, what might its meaning be in that case? Well, I'm sure many of you have come across the story of Justinian exclaiming, Solomon, I have defeated you when he entered Hagia uh, Sophia for the first time. But that almost certainly never happened. It comes from a 10th century text, and almost none of which we believe. But it reduces Hagia Sophia into a kind of a game of one-upmanship among builders. Did Hagia Sophia reflect a conception of theology? Did it enable people to materially experience that theology? Uh, that was murky at best for me. And we consider the Parthenon in Athens. Its location is enmeshed within a dense network of Athenian mythology and history. The monument expresses the power of the city of Athens. Its context and its adornment say something specific about the city's relationship to its patron goddess. Her colossal statue, made of gold and ivory, stood in the eastern chamber before a pool of water or oil. And the massive eastern doorway of the temple was flanked by large windows, so that when the sun arose above Mount Hymetus in the east, the light of the attic sky would have flooded into her chamber, reflected off the pool, and onto the golden ivory. So we can imagine the brilliant effect that would have had on a proud Athenian. I had no conception of how Hagia Sophia might have provided a similar experience to the pious Constantinopolitan, or how that experience was inscribed within a Christian theological narrative at least not until I encountered the work of Bissera Pencheva on this topic. Bissera is a professor of art history at Stanford University, and her book on Hagia Sophia is called Hagia Sophia, Sound, Space, and Spirit in Byzantium. It is the culmination of years of research, and it has provided me, at least, with a way to finally appreciate Hagia Sophia on a wholly different level. Uh, it has actually made Hagia Sophia now one of my favorite topics to teach in general history courses, uh, in part because I can use audio and video files to explain what the great church encoded beyond its own architecture, uh, which would never have been an end in itself. Here's my conversation with Bissera Pencheva. Stay tuned after the end of the conversation for an additional audio file. Hello, Bissera, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so we've been talking about it, yes, Sophia, for some time. I've, I've been uh, learning from you a lot as your project progressed. And so I should congratulate you on the book, which came out, was it last year? 2017. And it pulls together all of these threads that you've been uh, researching for some time. And I have to say, uh, I mean, congratulations are due not just for completing the book, but to write an original book on Hagia Sophia that takes our understanding of, of the building and its purpose to just a whole new level. I mean, I, on the one hand, I wanted to say that it changed the way I view Hagia Sophia, but that wouldn't be technically right because I really didn't understand the monument at all. I, it's more like I had like a, just a sketch, and almost like an architectural sketch of it. And so your book came along and filled it out with color and sound and and all of these other um, uh, senses, and uh, really just uh, changed how I understood it. Um, so your book is very immersive also in the sense that, in, in two senses. First, in that it recreates the, the, sensation, the sensation of experiencing the liturgy in Hagia Sophia um, in terms of sound and color and light and so on. 
But it's also immersive in that you embed that experience within the ways in which the Byzantines understood uh, sacred presence and the liturgy and the Holy Spirit and in very philological. I mean, I think you are an art historian to warm a philologist's heart um, in given how, how richly you engage with the sources uh, for all of this. Um, so since there's a lot going on in the book, and I don't think that we'll be able to get to all of it, but I think that our listeners should should get, you know, some, um, you know, preliminary understanding of what's going on. So let's just talk about the senses a little bit first, uh, and specifically how the senses are activated during the liturgy in Hagia Sophia. Um, but before we get to the specifics, can I ask you, like, is this coming from um, a, a new approach or model in within art history or in talking about historical architecture? Uh, could you give a little background as to this project, where it's coming from? There is a very strong movement in uh, religious studies uh, towards the census. And some of the um, publications in the 2000s, like the one um, by Susan um, Harvey on the sense of smell in the establishment of um, especially Syriac spirituality is one of the leading voices in the field. What is new is the way our history enters this topic, recognizing that um, in order to participate fully of what the senses could offer, one needs to relinquish some of the privileging of sight. So I would say, yes, there is a foundation, and it is within religious studies. There are other publications as well, um, uh, that uh, one that came out from Yale on um, um, it's called Sensorio Religion or Sensory Religion. Probably I'm not quoting the exact title. The important thing is to reconsider that the role that experience could play in our engagement with the past. We have relied uh, quite significantly on texts and reading and very little on experience. And I would say that the sensorial turn brings this aspect into account. But I would say that what my approach had wedded is not just attention to the senses, but also the meaningful way of bringing phenomenology in the study of religious experience and recognition of um, the presence of the metaphysical in things that are not um, necessarily um, material, but they are experiential in the space. And this is where, for instance, sound plays a very important role. This is not something that you can hold, but at the same time, it has a profound tactile and uh, audible um, auditory um, effect on the body. Yes, I, because my, my knowledge of Hagia Sophia before I encountered your book was largely sort of architectural and engineering. And I mean, it was a very static uh, view and uh, understanding of the of the building. And what you propose is a more, so I'm picking some words out that you use, is, is sometimes fluid, dynamic, or multi-sensory experience. Um, and sometimes you call it liquid rather than solid. And I think that's, I don't know if you intended that as a paradox, because we're, you know we think of a yes, Sophia as quite solid, um, and and yet you bring out all the ways in which it's sort of liquid and you know it's full of reverberation and echoes and things like this. Um, so why don't we start with the acoustics? Um, so what was distinctive about the acoustics of a yes, Sophia? And and first, could you start by telling us who would have been producing sound during the liturgy? What is special about the acoustics of the space is that it's in excess, that everything, all these um, aspects of resonant interior, reverberant sound, singing, they're present throughout the Mediterranean. What is special about Hagia Sophia is the intensity and the excess that all these uh, aspects are brought to. And therefore, um, they ask to be acknowledged and um, addressed. The space itself is used for the celebration mostly of Orthros, uh, so the Matins liturgy and uh, Hesperinos, the um, liturgy, the Vespers of, of the evening service. The building is um, of enormous size and therefore for a long period of time 
it was not used for um, daily um, distribution of the Eucharist. It's a this is a very late phenomenon. It happened only in the 11th century and required a lot of imperial financial backing in order to take place. 500 people were engaged in uh, the operations of the space when the building is open for service. But this is taking me away from the question you asked. The main choir of Hagia Sophia is 25 people. They're divided into two groups and each performs on a bi-weekly basis. So you have approximately 12 voices by one and led by a leader, total of 13, that sing the most complicated pieces and they carry the backbone of the liturgy. In addition to that choir, there is a, they're called, once again to restate, the elite choir is called the Psalti. They are supported by a much larger body of singers. There were 120 at the time of Justinian, and half of them performed on a bi-weekly basis. So expect another 60 to this 12 or 13. So let's say you have around 73 people that are on the official imperial payroll. Then you have the singing of psalmody with refrains, and the refrains are performed by the congregation. So you have a space where there is no audience that um, passively sits to listen to the service. Everyone is a performer. They are all activated in the space. And since the space uh, in its um, Justinianic idiom could house 16,000 people, it's an amazing amount of sonic energy that is emptied in this space. And everyone is integrated. The extent to which um, one could expect everyone to concentrate is probably not much different from our goals within a lecture hall, that not everyone is on all the time. But the structure is such that through the singing of refrains, you can tune in and out (laughs) of the performance. Yeah, so we're going to play a brief clip that attempts uh, a video clip that uh, sorry an, an audio clip that attempts to recreate something of the reverberative qualities of the interior of Hagia Sophia uh, before we do that can you say something about those reverberative qualities and why they're significant and also um, who produced these kinds of clips who's who's behind them as I answer the question, I would also say a little more about the acoustics of the space. Because it has a large interior volume, as well as reflective surfaces, these are ideal conditions for long reverberation time. So frequencies within the range of the human voice could reverberate uh, upwards of 11 seconds. This is extremely long reverberation time. Most concert halls today are approximately two seconds reverberation time. So you can imagine the scale of this excess of reverberation. And just to explain what reverberation is, because it's different from echo, reverberation is the continual energy that is sustained in the space, continues to propagate in the space after the original signal has been switched off. The signal could be the human voice, of course, but it can be um, electromagnetic um, sing- uh, signal that is played by an acoustic system in the space. But this is what reverberation is, extremely long reverberation time. Um, when I started working on Hagia Sophia, by serendipity, I discovered the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics at Stanford. And there I was introduced to Jonathan Abo, who is an electric engineer. And this happened back in 2008. We have been collaborating since. When we started, we um, were enchanted by um, the idea of how to use technology in order to make the voice of Hagia Sophia sound for contemporary audiences. And the need of the use of technology is there because the space is off limits for any performance, be it instrumental or of the human voice. Once Hagia Sophia was transformed into a museum at the beginning of the 20th century by Kemal Atatürk in 1935, the, a ban was established that um, for bait any use of the space for music. This means that the only way to revive the voice of Hagia Sophia is through digital means. When we started, we did not have any acoustic measurements on which to base um, 
the model and very early on one of the um, um, great advances that Icons of Sound, our collaboration did was to develop a very accessible means of gathering the acoustic response of the building, which was through a balloon pop. Subsequently, we have brought more um, machinery in that space and we had done more traditional measurements. But for the first uh, six or seven years of this project, we worked um, with a method using balloon pops, which at the beginning was um, uh, considered um, uh, unreliable in the field just because no one else had done it. But I think the use of um, technology and software that the Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustic mobilized basically dispelled this initial um, skepticism towards the approach to the extent that people say, oh, of course, everyone uses balloon pops now. I know that not everyone uses it, but the reason why it is important is because it gives scholars a possibility and also um, people who are fascinated with acoustics to gather acoustic response uh, with very cheap means and then use this as a basis for more complicated uh, studies of the space. Now back to what this recording is. Um, we uh, are going to hear in the course of this interview um, a couple of um, pieces that were recorded in uh, at Stanford Capella Romana sang them. They are reconstructed from medieval, the musical, um, um, the melodies are reconstructed from medieval manuscripts. And this choir is singing in a space that allows them to interact live with the acoustics of Hagia Sophia. And then they are recorded dry in means that all the tracks coming from the individual voices are recorded without any imprint of the room acoustics. And then they are transformed with the acoustic signature of Hagia Sophia. So what the audience hears in this recording is the final product, which is Capella Romana as if singing in Hagia Sophia or singing with the acoustics of Hagia Sophia. The importance of this use of technology is because it allows the choir to interact live with the space, something that has not been done up to this point, and Icons of Sound introduced this new method. It allows for psychoacoustics to develop, that the choristes experience how their voice projects in the space and how to use the acoustics that this space has in order to substantiate the energy that they put into it. So I remember you, you telling me years ago that um, the possibilities for measuring the sound in a Yes Sophia was either a balloon pop or firing a gun. Uh, <laughs> and that uh, you, you, you opted for the balloon, obviously. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's listen to the first clip, um, and then we can discuss the, uh, the implications of the uh, audio. Are modern um, aesthetics of sound dry and those of the Byzantine liturgy wet or the Byzantine forms of prayer that took place in Hagia Sophia? And I guess what we just heard would fall under the category of wet, um, especially as they create what you call non-semantic patterns, that is a presence without representation. Um, so th this distinction between dry and wet sound would appear to be difficult for modern audiences to overcome. 
So why is it important for meaning to be dissolved in the performance of prayer in Hagia Sophia? This is a very complex question, and I don't think we have the answer for it. We are dealing with what survives. And I also think that um, late antique Mediterranean culture dealt with what they built. It so happens that when Christianity became legalized by Emperor Constantine in 313, he imposed a very imperial architectural model on the ecclesiastical space. He built large interiors with marble floors, revetments, columns. These are huge containers and their reflective surfaces again present the two most important features that result in reverberant acoustics, which means that the late antique liturgy from the 4th century on had to deal with very reverberant interiors. And therefore, the experience of the divine in these spaces was associated with wet sound. How they dealt with They didn't leave many traces. And what we see in commentaries by Ambrose of the liturgy in Milan, for instance, he dwells a lot on the image of water and the waves and the experience of the liturgy as being the seeds of people that enter into a space that has a reverberant voice. So there is no treatise that explains um, categorically and um, clearly the liturgical and mystagogical significance, and here mystagogy refers to the meaning of the liturgy, of that uh, aesthetic experience that is created. So in other words, we have very little ground on which to build on intentionality. It is possible that wet sound was serendipity, that all of a sudden you have large interiors with reverberant acoustics. And the reason that there is a Um, They put an emphasis on the interior acoustics is because Christianity invited the faithful inside the spaces, as opposed to pagan uh, pagan religious services, which took place mostly outside the temple, and the temple was the place of the divinity. Most temples have the same characteristic, large space, reflective material. So in other words, Um, the metaphysical, the space where the metaphysical dwells has a long tradition in the Mediterranean of being reverberant. But Christianity placed the faithful inside these reverberant interiors. So they were surrounded by this wet sound. Now Hagia Sophia introduces one other element, and again, it is not specific to this building, but it became even more prominent because it was brought to excess. They were central plant buildings. Antioch has its golden church, which had a dome, and probably some of the acoustic effects in that building uh, presented energies that are similar to the ones in Hagia Sophia. But Hagia Sophia, with the Justinianic rebuilding of the space, taking it from the original 4th century basilica into a central plant building, created this attuned, this extra... um, acoustic experience in the space. And what is it? It is the fact that um, high frequency sound uh, gathers in the dome and intensifies as it reflects and refracts in that space. And some of this energy rains down on the interior. And that acoustic rain, golden rain, is something that is specific to central plant buildings. And that's probably the major difference between a basilica interior and a domed interior. The domed interior allowed for a return, this very important acoustic rain. And therefore, it created a much more intense experience of the bodiless voice of the metaphysical, that it's now some of the energy comes down very prominently on on the congregation. A basilica space will have the reverberant sound, but sonic energy will travel, these high frequencies will travel towards the ceiling and will be absorbed by the wooden trusses because the ceilings were with wooden trusses. So you'll have the sense of this anagogical being being lifted up into the space. But what you would not have is this powerful effect of grace, haris, raining on the congregation. And that's what Hagia Sophia does. And in the earlier dome, because the building was built uh, in an amazing short span of time, five years and a couple of months from 532 to 537. And the original dome was a flat dome, which means that it will reflect even more energy down on the uh, kalihoros, on the space under the dome. Unfortunately, 
flat dome uh, is unstable. Uh, it doesn't distribute, it doesn't counteract this outward force um, in the construction, and therefore it was very vulnerable to earthquakes and it collapsed. Um, half of the dome collapsed after an earthquake in 557, which necessitated a reconstruction. And at that point, the legacy of the original architects was transformed and a, and a dome with a much higher apex was created, which means that you have now a concentration of energy and less of the sonic energy raining on the interior. You still have the effect, but it is diminished in the space. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have the architects who built that space or the um, um, literate elite respond to what it does? Of course, but we don't have this text. So again, this question of intentionality could not be resolved. Um, but clearly, these buildings became instrument to manifest, to capture as a sensorial experience what is beyond um, material grasp, and this is divine presence. And this is an aspect where this emphasis on the senses and the use of phenomenology to engage with the record of the past becomes very important. So much about the religious ritual is to give a sense of partaking in the divine. It is temporal and it's fleeting because it takes place in time and space. And the ecclesiastical space is an instrument that makes this sensorial experience intense and profound. But so much of it is unfolding beyond sight, which you are most comfortable with. Um, and there is the, probably one of the most articulate uh, way in which it has developed. And here with a space like Hagia Sophia, we are dealing with divine presence that remains invisible. Yet it is surround sound because the acoustic is an enveloping acoustics. It's a void that is nestled uh, within uh, uh, an outer shell, which means that the energy reaches the outer walls, reflects and comes back into the central place, the central, the nave, which the Byzantines called the Kalihoros. You're enveloped in sound, you have the sen and you have the sense of a bodiless voice that reciprocates. So in other words, the divine is present, it is manifested in the visible while retaining its invisibility. And if I remember, if I understood correctly, you argue that the way in which the chants were performed, you know, by, by drawing out the syllables, by repeating them sometimes, increased this immersive experience and further dissolved the dis distinct sort of discreteness of each word. Did, did I understand that correctly? Yes, you did. And this is something that um, I myself um, was uh, struggling to understand for a long period of time. Part of it is also the technology that the very first our realizations, this moment of imprinting the acoustic signature on recorded sound affected um, my understanding of the voice of that space. Our first recordings um, were extremely reverberant. We did make some mistakes and I think it's part of the process of making an experiment. You learn from your mistakes. But um, we misread the earlier um, acoustic measurements by a Danish team. So we had something extremely excessive of 24 seconds reverberation time, which was fantastic. Wow. So you cannot understand anything. No. And I think for a number of years I worked with that until we got a number of years, three years. And in 2010 we got our own acoustic measurements and the corrective kicked in. So what you have is... Um, an experience of sound that is very much affected as where you stay in the space. Clearly, the closer you are to the choir, the more um, intelligible the sound will be. The further away you stand, um, less this phenomenon will be less so and will diminish significantly. Now, we're dealing with a service, and here I'll say this very briefly, we're dealing with a service that is very well known by our participants, that they, on a, almost on a weekly basis, they had, uh, they're singing the entire uh, Psalter. So you, and since the Psalmody is the backbone of this liturgy, the text, the repertoire is so well known. The fact that you have moments of release from meaning yeah might have been very significant because it allows one to transcend from the familiar into the infamiliar. 
what is amazing is to see that this melodic phrasing and the text are so well coordinated that the um, the form of the music expresses the content. In other words, if you want to be rationally engaged in what is being sung, you'll get so much out of it. Otherwise, if you just let everything um, inundate you, you, you still experience these effects without rationalizing how exactly they're achieved in the space. And last thing I would say is, the building is reverberant. We have no texts that explain how the architects were interested in developing this reverberant sound. We have no information there. Yet what we have indirectly is that the cathedral chant of the elite songs using these um, effects of prosody, where the emphasis is on the texture of the sound rather than the meaning, in order to uh, substantiate their performance the singing of melismas, many notes to a syllable, and the singing of non-semantic vocables intercalated in between the syllables of the words are these two strategies with which the semantics is downplayed and the texture of what is sung becomes very important. So here is, as I said, indirect evidence that there is an aesthetic privileging of um, prosody over semantics because you enter in a space where the encounter with the metaphysical is the goal. And possibly this is a way in, a way in which one transcends the um, structure of the human voice and language and penetrates this metaphysical field. And we have many texts, the mystagogical texts that explain the liturgy, that insist on this interconnection between human voices and angelic voices as a desired effect of partaking in the liturgy. And possibly these are the moments in which one transcends uh, beyond the human register of the voice. Yeah, I mean, it's so difficult to talk about past sounds and, uh, you know, to work with them analytically, you know, as scholars. I mean, they're, they're lost and you have to use, you know, sophisticated technological means and inferences to recreate them and then you know, use Byzantine theological texts and concepts in order to interpret them. Um, and, and you're doing both in, in this book. And I, I thought that was very impressive. Um, so let's, let's turn from the oral um, component to the visual one. And uh, so to get us started, um, could you mention some ways in which uh, Hagia Sophia differed in the sort of visual impressions that it conveyed to visitors uh, when it was built so differently from now? Of course, and we are speaking about the Justinianic structure that was completed in 537 and then re-inaugurated after the reconstructions in 563. At this point in the history of the building, there were no anthropomorphic figural decorations in the space. The interior was covered by marble revetments, and gold mosaic structured in vegetal and geometric motifs and large prominence is given to crosses in the space. So this program is shocking for a Byzantinist art historian and I'm ridiculing myself here because we think about Byzantium as the culture of the icon and the icon we always associate with the figure of representation. It's a face, it's a figure, that you direct uh, uh, with immediacy and intimacy because you recognize the human shape in the artistic form. Well, Hagia Sophia challenges this notion and it's particularly perturbing because the same emperor who is responsible for the construction of Hagia Sophia, when he wanted, he built spaces where he insisted on the figure of representation. And this is Sinai, with its apse representing the transfiguration, in a space that was intensified by personal spiritual experiences. The monks were anchorites, they lived in caves, each one of them probably had a different vision of the experience of the divine in a space where the granite rock reflect the sunlight and they reflect sound, where even contemporary 6th century Byzantine sources speak about the terrifying sound of thunder in that landscape where sound would reflect across the granite rocks. So there, Justinian built a space where he um, anchored 
the experience of divine visions into the human figure. So why didn't he do this in Hagia Sophia? We have no answers, but this is the spe- we don't have final, complete, fully um, answers that fully explain the phenomenon. What instead we see of, by emphasizing the vegetal and geometric patterns in the space, this release from the human figure that puts very large cosmic claims as to what this interior does. I have my explanation of the space. I think it's partial and it will always be partial because I don't think it will be possible to um, uncover sources that directly relate and explain the aesthetic of the space. Uh, To put it um, briefly and clearly, Hagia Sophia places claims of being the space of Genesis, the site of Genesis, because it plays aesthetically the um, visual and acoustic experience of spirit hovering over the surface of the primordial ocean, which is the beginning of Genesis, for a space that was not founded on relics, where it was not founded on the Uh, foot of Christ walking through the sacred landscape, and here I'm referring to Jerusalem and Holy Land, or to the footsteps of the apostles, and here I mean Antioch, Rome, Alexandria, Hagia Sophia, or Antioch for that matter. Um, Hagia Sophia allowed Constantinople to put a claim to something that preceded all that. It became the center of Genesis. And it played with the metaphor of the primordial sea and the spirit that hovers over it. And its interior decoration resonates with these ideas. I say this is a hypothesis because we don't have the liturgic, uh, we don't have the textual tradition that could give the definitive answer. But it's important to think how aesthetics was manipulated to express ideology, and this is one example of it. Yeah, yeah and this, image, that, this image of the moment of creation. So, as I understand it, you build it up from two main elements, and the first is light and the movement of light within the building, and the second is the illusion of liquid surfaces um, within the building and how the light um, plays on those. Um, Could you talk a little bit about the movement of light in the building? Like where exactly does it come from? Because modern visitors are not likely to experience anything like it. The study of light in Hagia Sophia is an established tradition and there are a series of very compelling um, scholarly contributions um, to this topic. One of the most recent and the most important is Nadine Shibile's book on Hagia Sophia, which is um, focuses on the optical um, effects built in Hagia Sophia. I drew on this study, but it's clearly not uh, the main motif uh, in my approach. What is essential um, in this respect is that very similar to the way sonic energy is trapped and envelops the interior, so is also sonic manifestation, uh, so is also optical manifestation in the space. Um, and here I'm also recognizing that I had relied a lot on the um, optical measurements that were done by Jacobus Potamianos and the reconstruction of some of the visual effects in the space. He's an architectural historian and he had focused, he dedicated his career to the study of light in ecclesiastical buildings. The um, window sills um, of the uh, windows in the drum of the dome are set at an angle and this allows for light as it enters the interior to be reflected and project into the dome, making the dome um, wakeful eye that in no moment during the day was there any shadow in this golden shield. So this wakeful eye always projected light into the space. As light is coming, there it is bounded light and so it creates this paradox of something that is limitless yet limited within the space. And it also consolidates and creates these effects that subvert what is solid and uh, what is sparse, that light frequently appears as columns of light that very that dematerialize the actual columns in the space. You mentioned something that no one could experience that. Um, many people could experience that, but it's a question uh, when they enter the interior. Because um, Hagia Sophia is a museum, it has working hours, and they're usually from nine to five. While the building was created, first and foremost, for the 
Orthros and Hesperina services, which coincide with sunrise and sunset. And this is the most photogenic moments of the building. And this is when light plays a very important role, because light subverts what is static and, um, and permanent in the space. When the sun rays of early morning come into the space, they transform the interior. And this is when the Proconesian marble, which looks gray with dove gray patterns, becomes incandescent. And it has this um, opacity that one sees on the surface of the Bosphorus, where all these connections between the interaction of the building in its interior with the exterior and the fact that Constantinople is surrounded by bodies of waters become very important. Also, the gold mosaic, it's not solid within that space. And in this moment of sunrise, you can see how it transforms into rivers of gold. And viewers today can hope uh, to get aspects of that in the winter when they come into the space, let's say December, when sunset is early. And sometimes it comes close. So December is the time to see it when it coincides uh, with its photogenic, charismatic moment. It is about sensitivity, and here I would say what art history um, as a field had um, privileged is the static and stable. Photographing an interior um, in stable light conditions is essential for the way we study architecture and art, but medieval aesthetic and I don't think it's only medieval, but because I'm invested in this material, I speak from this point of view. This medieval aesthetic is about what is transformed, what is in constant flux, and I call this the material flux. And this is where spirit resides, that the energy, metaphysical energy, manifests itself in the way it transforms what is static into something that is alive and incandescent. And this is where these visual aspects can be perceived in Hagia Sophia in the charismatic moments of sunset and sunrise. Yes, the capturing the movement of the light across the surfaces, especially the rippled uh, marble surfaces inside Hagia Sophia produces these effects. You actually have some wonderful images in your book where you capture exactly how the light transforms these surfaces um, and makes them into what you call liquid gold. Um, and uh, I, I thought those were those were quite good. And in in, in the description of this um, uh, episode, I'll put a link to a brief uh, video where you capture some of these effects, and our listeners can go and and, and look at them there. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, read uh, a couple of the verses from the poet uh, Paul the Silentiary. This is a description of a Hagia Sophia that he wrote after the second um, dedication. This was in the early 550s. Um, and there's some verses there where he, he, he actually alludes to these phenomena. Um, that, do, do you have those? I have them and I'll be happy to read. So this one quote um, refers to the Proconesian marble that served as pavement uh, for the interior. And Proconesian marble is uh, the mass produced and the mass used material for ecclesiastical and civic buildings in the Mediterranean. The island is a little bit more than 100 kilometers uh, from Constantinople and the quarries are very close to the harbor, which means that the material could be easily um, produced and uh, exported. And that already makes construction of monumental buildings more economical and uh, more practical. And it also means that this marble is used on a massive scale throughout the Mediterranean, to all these places that could be reach, reached uh, on ship. And a colleague of mine once said that Proconesian marble is the flat-packed Ikea church of the Middle Ages, yeah. of the late antiquity. And it's true because the island also prefabricated a lot of the liturgical furnishings to be reassembled then on particular right. sites. Right. And some of these um, amazing finds of excavations uh, nautical excavations, maritime, uh, underwater excavations out of the coast, uh, off the coast of Sicily had uncovered contemporary 6th century flat pack churches that were sent from this island. So Justinian availed himself to this um, abundant material that was also cheap to transport and it had a beautiful effect on the interior. And this is what um, 
uh, how the Proconesian marble is described by Paul de Silentri. It's an acrisis that was read half of it in the imperial palace and the other half in the patriarchal palace attached to the southern side of Hagia Sophia. To an elite audience, the language is complex. It combines um, Homeric Greek with Attic Greek. There is a political introduction that is then matched by this acrisis in Homeric Greek. And it speaks to this elite audience and it's uh, hard to penetrate text, but uh, for the purposes for which it was set, I think it was um, very evocative because the literate audience that heard it would be able to follow the illusions and uh, would enjoy this transformation of language in order to capture the, mat uh, the material flux of the um, surfaces that are affected by charisma, this presence of the divine. So he says, the peak of Proconesus, smoothly spreading over the entire pavement, has gladly given its back to the life-giving mistress, which is the Theotokos or the church. The softly rippling Bosphorus appears as the radiance of a dark metal that has transformed into luminous surface, end of quote. This is an example of how ekphrasis, which is a description of buildings transforming the listeners into spectators, teaches its audience to focus on what is impermanent and transformed and transforming as opposed to what is static and uh, clear and identifiable. In this passage, what we see is the swift change from marble to water, the rippling Bosphorus, to metal and again it's fluid transformed molten surface that becomes luminous like the light of the sun but also the light of the sun reflected on the surface of water it is an example in which language with its fluidity is used in order to create this evocative atmosphere to attune the attention of the listeners to these fleeting effects Basically, Byzantine literature trained its audience to follow that. And if we want to get into the mindset, it is this sensitivity to the chameleonic that is very important, because then it has um, religious uh, significance that spirit transforms matter. Its indwelling is manifested in incandescence. The whole interior of Hagia Sophia is uh, built with materials that proleptically have the capacity to create these chameleonic effects. If one is attuned to them, one could see it. It happens all the time. Yeah, um, um, Paul's poem is uh, is very evocative of the, the colors and the visual imagery and, or the visual experience of the interior of Hagia Sophia. And um, I, I strongly recommend our listeners take a look at it um, there's a partial translation, in, I think, by Peter Bell in the Liverpool series, um, and um, you know it's 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 difficult to read. I mean, as you said, I mean, it, it requires quite a bit of attention. The the imagery is very dense, um, but he focuses a lot on the visual side, not the not the audio side. I don't think that he alludes to that ever. Um, but in terms of depicting the spatial arrangements inside and the relationship among all the different interior spaces, it's it's a wonderful text. And and uh, you sometimes also talk about the, the you, about the building as having two axes. Um, so one is horizontal uh, toward the altar, and the other is vertical uh, toward the dome. And and you come back to these, you know, on and off uh, throughout the book. Um, could you explain what their significance is? Of course. My engagement with Hagia Sophia led me to the recognition that two essential energies are mobilized in this space in the course of the liturgical ritual. Um, one of them is inspiriting and the other one is mirroring. Mirroring is understood not as a vertical mirror but as a horizontal mirror and the best explanation for this is the lake in the mountain that ingathers the sky and makes what is ungraspable and unreachable um, visually present, but it remains ungraspable and it remains ephemeral and fragile because any ripple created by the wind cancels out the image of the sky on the surface of water. 
that aspect of the surface of water is very important within the interior of Hagia Sophia. And we see it evoked in the um, acrastic tradition, but we also see it present within the liturgical tradition. And the reason why mirroring is important is because it has acoustic and visual um, modes in which it operates. Light and sound are reflected, they're both waves. And so this mirroring or reflection is essential in the way this energy propagates in space, light and sound. The best way to explain this um, mirroring is um, in a quote that comes from Procopius. Um, he is um, the other contemporary 6th century source. It's not a poem, it is in prose, where he describes um, the interior. And I'll read this quote because um, to me it was eye-opening and I started seeing energies that I was not aware of before. He says, and whenever anyone enters this church to pray, he understands at once that is not by any human power or skill, but by the influence of God that this work has been so finely turned. And so his mind is lifted upwards towards God and exalted, feeling that he, God, cannot be far away, but must especially love to dwell in this place which he has chosen." End of quote. And so what you have here, I'll start from the end of the quote. He says that the mind of the faithful is turned upwards, which is turned towards the dawn. And this is the visual axis, the major visual axis that a dawn central plan building creates. It asks the viewer to follow the gaze upwards towards the dawn. The reason for that is that the human eye follows this concentration of light, and this concentration of light is created by the ring of windows in the dome and the semi-domes. This intensity of the optical invites the gaze upwards towards the divine. At the same time, the quote says that divinity had chosen this place to dwell in, and you have the sense of the kata, of turning down the axis that turns down and is the meeting of these two axes the human one directed the gaze towards god and the divine the bird's eye view that looks at focuses on the divine below are ingathered in that space and this ingathering is explained not as static but as a continuous spinning and rotation because it says that this building it's so finely turned by the divine energy. And that's the horos, what in Greek is known as a horos, this movement that is um, circular and also anagogical. And it is essential that the space is understood, not the static, but in a continuous movement. And this continuous spinning or horos brings about these two other vectors of looking up towards the divine and the, the divine deciding, choosing to dwell down on earth. Right, and that so it becomes yeah, I mean, Hagia Sophia would not just be a place where um, you know, congregants go to encounter God, but also it's a place for them to be seen by God. So we're, we're almost out of time. Um, I, was uh, I was wondering if you could say a few more words about your conception of the liturgy or the Eucharist as an icon. Um, you, you talk about this at various points in the book. Um, and you, you call the church a performative icon or an oral icon of God. And I think you were trying to make an intervention there in the way in which we talk about Byzantine icons or Byzantine conception of icons in general. Could, could you say something about the implications of that view? This is probably one of the most complex aspects um, of this analysis. Um, I alluded to it early on in our conversation when um, I said that Byzantine culture is... Um, identified uh, as the um, culture of icons, understood as anthropomorphic figures, faces. Hagia Sophia brings to the foreground the notion of an image that is understood as the human body that had become the vessel of the spirit. So, iconicity or I image is performative. It's the capacity of the faithful to become a container of the spirit. And this tradition, there is a long established patristic tradition that speaks about images in these terms. So 
in our desire to collapse Byzantium to the culture of icons as figuration had made us blind to the existence of a textual tradition that argued vehemently about understanding image as performance. And we see it, for instance, in uh, John Chrysostomus and Basil and Gregory of Nyssa, who try to distinguish Christianity from paganism, saying, yes, we share the same word icon or imago um, that is uh, present in pagan and Christian culture, but pagans connected it to the skill of the artist to produce an image that appears lifelike. And therefore, we should always credit the craftsmanship of the artist for producing this image, as opposed to Christianity. And here they introduce the performative model, where the individual Christian, by his moral behavior and engagement in the liturgy, becomes an imago dei, or icon to theo. And this is the capacity of, it's in a constant flux, this capacity to preserve the image of God. And it speaks to the continual return to the image from which Adam, Adam had fallen with the fall. That he was built in the image of God, and when Christ breathed in him, he became a living icon to theo, an image of God. And the story of Christianity and also the um, condemnation of Christianity in time is that this recuperation, this capacity to become an image of God is ephemeral. It can only be eternal at the end of time and for those who had done their job correctly during their lifetime. So by engaging in Hagia Sophia and exploring it through the sonic aspect, it brought for me to the forefront the importance of chant as a way in which to create this inspiriting, spirit entering matter. Chant is about breath that is exhaled in space, it's sonic energy in space. Since the service is in great part singing, the liturgical performance was about inspiriting that the void the architecture contains a void. That void is activated during the liturgical ritual with the charismatic light of sunrise and sunset as well as the continuous singing in that space. And try to imagine if it's to its maximum of 16,000 voices exhaling their energy in the refrains. This must have been really an overwhelming sonic experience. And it is a sonic experience in which voice and energy, sonic energy, as I said, is enveloping and penetrating because the skin and the clothing consume some of it. So you participate into a greater whole. One transcends the self, and this is essential. And therefore, the sonic aspect leads us to a Byzantium that had an idea of image that was a, based on the liturgical performance, on breath that becomes incarnate in matter. And in Greek, it's easier to um, recognize this sonorous and harmonious interaction between the finite human breath and the Holy Spirit, because it's the same word, pneuma, that designates both. So, and then there are a series of other terms that Greek uses further to explain this interaction, but I'm not going to move into that. That's why there is a book, and if yes. people go deeper into that, they can. But it is important for us to realize that there is a temporal dimension to iconicity in Byzantium, that it's something precious and fleeting. And to partake in it, you need to partake in the liturgy that becomes then this socialization, and also it's also control. So it is a static of beauty that has in it the most powerful grip of power. Well, Mr. I, I think that uh, you've done an incredible service uh, to us all. And um, I, you certainly opened my eyes um, and ears uh, to so many things that I had never even imagined, uh, you know, were there going on um, inside this building. And so I, I, I do hope that, uh, you know, many more people take this up and uh, also that our listeners should go look at the book because there's, there's, there's a lot it's, it, it, more richness to the analysis in there. And you ground everything in the Byzantine sources uh, very well. So I, I should thank you. You know, I mean, I've been following your work on this for over the years, but the book pulls it all very nicely together. Um, anyway, I, so I have just a closing question um, that I ask of all of my guests, which is if you could recommend two books um, that are not necessarily about Byzantium or, or your field specifically, um, but that uh, you would recommend to our readers as um, you know, good to think with. I'll answer this question in, um, in a slightly different way. 
the first thing I would recommend uh, with a lot of gratitude um, for the synergy and for the many years of harmonious collaboration is the new release of Capella Romana called Lost Voices of Hagia Sophia, medieval chant in uh, the great cathedral of Constantinople. This album will be out in November and it is a very complex um, creative work that includes a CD with the services for the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross. Um, and in addition to the CD, there is a Blu-ray DVD version. The, um, the Blu-ray includes surround sound, the capacity, the possibility, giving the listeners a possibility to hear the sound of Hagia Sophia in more complex setting that is dependent on um, uh, the um, individual user uh, of the technology um, to hear this enveloping sound of the cathedral. And then in the Blu-ray version is a documentary film done by, directed by Duigue Ruchman that um, are, um, explores the history of the building, the, its investment in acoustics and reverberant sound, and the role that Capella Romana and Stanford's Icons of Sound had played in bringing this awareness to the sonic aspect uh, uh, to prominence. So I would say the album is uh, one of the important sources to think with. I would say the other material that I've always been drawn to is uh, studies on phenomenology. And there is a series of books I would recommend, uh, starting with uh, Jean-Luc Marion, In Excess, um, and Heidegger, most of the translated essays. I love his short essay, The Thing, which really made me become aware um, of the capacity of something that is finite to vessel in the most elusive of energies of the divine, when he discusses the jug for wine and um, uh, water uh, as being the void that ingathers what is infinite. Um, and I say this because uh, I'm an academic and we have been trained to rely so heavily on texts, but phenomenology gives a release and from the constraints of the textual and makes it makes us aware that there is a difference between reading and hearing. And the project that I engaged in and Hagia Sophia made me sensitive to this aspect of voice, that it's hearing, that is not about reading a book. And I'll finish with um, sharing of my own experience. When I went in 2010 to record a balloon pop, um, it took some time to um, have the right conditions to do that. And I actually uh, spent great expenses of my day sitting on the floor and listening to the sound of the scaffolding, of people working uh, on the scaffolding and just hammering. And these are metallic sounds with a lot of energy impact. And the space made them last for, as I said, upwards of 11 seconds. And I would close my eyes and listen, and I would have never imagined myself 10 or 20 years earlier, let's say as a graduate student in uh, art history, ever listening to a building. I'll finish here. Yeah, I, I obviously I can't match your experiences. Um, the the only sort of unique experience I've had in Hagia Sophia was one evening when, I don't know, like once a month maybe, it's open at night. Mm -hmm. And I was just walking past it outside, and the guard said, hey, it's it's open. Do you want to come in? And I said, why not? And I, I had never been inside at night, and it was a completely different experience. Um, and you know, listening to you talk now, I was almost thinking, well, okay, so now you should write the next book on it, which is Hagia Sophia at Night. Um, the, the interior was completely transformed. It, it almost looked like I was in... A, you know, when you're upstairs in the galleries, it looked like there was a different building across the nave, you know, that you're looking at some other, because you couldn't see the dome. So, Bissara, it was a great pleasure, and thank you again for coming on, and I do hope that more people, um, lots of people, um, read your book, and that we start talking about Hagia Sophia in these terms. Thank you. Thank you, Tony. That was my conversation with Bissara Pencheva. If you are interested in hearing more, and in seeing a video that illustrates how she sees Hagia Sophia, click on the link that is provided in the description of the episode. 
Finally, we leave you here with a two-minute audio recording of the Contagion of the Cross. <laughs>